a strange thing. I think I might have been part of writing a textbook on business. Back in my seminary days, I ended up getting a job with the School of Business in the undergrad where I was at. I have zero background in business. You need to know that. But that's okay because normally work studies just make copies of tests and prepare PowerPoints and grade papers, but not like the content, just did this person answer B or C kind of stuff. So it's okay. But the professor that I was working for was working on, he was writing a textbook at the time, and he gave me the chapters, and he asked me to do research on those topics, and then even write about what I found. Now, he would take it and and write over it with his own voice and his own concept, so it wasn't plagiarism, but in a weird way, I was a part of the process, even though, really, I know nothing. And on top of that, the textbook was about the intersection of business and social media. And those of you who know me know that I don't really live up to my millennial generation. And I'm not exactly the cutting edge of social media. So it kind of makes you think twice about textbooks, doesn't it? Like, who was part of this process? Well, anyway, one day in my research for this book, I was reading a secular business article And I came across the word evangelist. And I was like, wait a minute. That's a word I know. Like, that's a Bible word. I'm a seminary student. I could tell you the Greek. You know? And and I found out that this is a technical term used in the business field. Ugo, you can maybe give me a thumbs up, thumbs down, sideways. Okay. Technical term used in the business field. Basically, that means someone who has experienced a product and loves it so much that they go out and tell everyone about it. Their family, their friends, they come to people like, if you haven't tried this, you have got to try this. And all of a sudden, they become like a representative of that product. And the beauty is, the reason why businesses love this is it's this Nobody pays this person to do this. This is not a line item in the marketing budget. It's just that the person is so genuinely excited about whatever it is that they just want everyone in their life to experience what they've experienced. That's what an evangelist is in the business world. And it makes you think in in that sense of the term and in the business sense What area of my life might I be called an evangelist? For example, uh, some might call Lisa and I evangelists for Aldi. Like we are a walking advertisement for Aldi. We've kind of become known for this in my extended family. Like we'll see someone eating something and we're like, well, did you know that Aldi (laughs) carries the exact same thing? just as good, much cheaper. Or someone say, well, I really want to start eating organic. And we'll say, well, did you know that Aldi has this exquisite line of organic 
products. You'll be saving so much money, you won't even be able to fit your wallet in your I only eat organic skinny jeans. You like LaCroix? Have you ever tried La Vie? It's just as good. Save you millions. Or some might describe me as an evangelist for Iowa. Like you have not completely lived until you've been to Iowa. You have not completely lived until you visited my hometown where sliced bread was invented. That's what they claim. For others, it might be a TV series or maybe essential oils or a certain restaurant or movie or fitness club or money-saving coupon site. What is it for you? In your life, is there anything where you might be described as an evangelist? In fact, if you can think of something real quick, take a second to to tell it to somebody next to you. What area of your life might you might, might be described as an evangelist? Only if you can think of something. I'm not opposed to any of these things. It's okay for us to be excited about things in life, right? Within reason. That's okay. I don't apologize for wanting you to check out Aldi in Iowa. That's okay. But isn't it true that we can often be evangelists for so many different things except Jesus? Even when we're excited, genuinely excited about all that he's done for us, we often find it hard to share. Even when our heart wants that, when, when, when our hearts are there. And I see that in our church family. Even when our hearts are there, sometimes we find it hard to get there, right? Right? I think many Christians would say this is an area of real struggle, sincere struggle. Last month at, at Pastors Conference, Ed Stetzer, uh, who used to be the president of Lifeway Research, presented some findings uh, from a study that Lifeway did. Uh, they asked Protestant churchgoers, that means regular attenders of, of churches that are somewhat like ours in America. And they asked, in the past six months, how many times have you personally shared with someone how to become a Christian? And 61%, the vast majority, said zero. And then they said, well, okay, how many times have you invited someone to church in the past six months? And 50% said zero. And maybe it's because, you know, we think people don't want to hear it, so we keep it to ourselves. Well, Lifeway did, uh, I think it was another study, where they asked unchurched folks. So these are people who have rarely come to a church or any religious institution in their lives. Unchurched folks ages 18 through 19. Okay? No. 18 through 29. And they asked them, Are you willing to listen to someone tell you about what they believe about Christianity? 89% said yes. Isn't that amazing? 61%, again, the vast majority, said they were willing to study the Bible 
with a friend. And almost half said they were willing to join a small group to learn about the Bible and Jesus. There's all this rhetoric out there, isn't it, about how society is more and more closed than ever before, and especially the younger generation. But you put these statistics together, and, and, and what we find is that there's people who are willing to listen out there, people who are interested in learning, but the church at large is finding it hard to engage, finding it hard to share. You're finding it hard to be an evangelist for Jesus, or to put it in another way, to be a witness for Jesus. And let me make clear that I am not here to guilt anyone into being a witness. When we witness out of guilt, we're basically saying, I'm sharing with you right now so that I won't feel bad. I don't think guilt gets our witness very far. I don't want people to witness out of guilt, but in recognizing the area for improvement in my life, and in our lives, and in the church at large, I do want people to be empowered in this area. Pastor Ralph and the other elders and I do want people to feel more equipped in this area. And so that's part of the reason why we are beginning a new series that will go on for the next few weeks this summer. We've paused from Hebrews. We're beginning a new series, and it's called Witness. Witness, it's more than something that we do, it's something that we are. It's more than an activity that we turn on and off like a faucet, but an identity that we embrace as believers. Being a witness is a fundamental part of who we are. Jesus describes his disciples with the metaphors of salt and light. It's who we are to be, people who go out into our surroundings and impact them like salt and light that spreads with the message and love. Of God. It's who we are to be. It's part of our vision statement. Every person on mission, it's what we're seeking to be as a church. And yet, we might ask, but how? What does it look like? And I think those are good questions. So, in this series, we're seeking to equip people more in this area by looking at all different people in different scenarios all throughout Scripture who lived out being a witness to give us different pictures of what it looks like, to see tangible examples of what it looks like for each one of them in their settings, that we might translate it into our lives, to see what it might look like for us. And it's not just the New Testament, but also the Old Testament. Because mission didn't begin with the church, it began with God. It's His mission. His mission to bring a wayward people to Himself. And it's been going on since the beginning. So Israel is positioned in the midst of the nations to be a light to their surroundings. To be an instrument of God's blessing to their surroundings. Pointing to God. And they, all, they didn't always get it right. I want you to know that. In fact, often they didn't, but at times they did. And our passage today is a shining example of a person who did. A person who got it right. 
And that's found in 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 19. So if you can, I invite you to turn there. 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 19. We already read the entire passage earlier in the service today on purpose. And so instead of reading it again, what I'm going to do is just retell it as I walk through it. But I encourage you that as I do, would you please follow along if you're able, whether it's on a phone or in a Bible in front of you. 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 19. There's Naaman. If you were in Syria at the time, you couldn't miss him. He's dressed in full military regalia. He's big. He's mighty. He's a valiant warrior. In fact, he's the commander of the entire powerhouse of the Syrian army. And with him at the helm, they were experiencing a season of success, of victory. Can you see him? He had reached the American dream before America was even born. He was wealthy. He was powerful. It says later in the text that the king would lean on his arm. He was the king's right-hand man. He was wealthy. He was powerful. He was successful. And I imagine he was very popular. Can you see him? Can you see him walking through the streets of Syria? Everyone acknowledging his presence wherever he goes. You see, he he had it all together. Can you see him? Can you see him now? Behind closed doors? Thrashing and torn? Afflicted by a disease that had taken Over his life. Leprosy. It was the physical agony. The constant burning and wounds that stuck to him as close to his skin. Never any relief. Always there. But not just the physical agony, but also the psychological anguish. The relational, emotional stuff that this brought, the shame to his own sense of identity. I imagine that when he looked at himself, this is all he saw. It defined him. Agony and anguish, can you see him? Behind closed doors. He had everything. But so broken so unhappy in such deep deep personal pain. And his whole household knew it. Even a little girl who worked there. In fact, she was from the land of Israel. She was a child of Abraham. But how did she get to Syria? Well, the Syrian army had invaded Israel a while back and they had snatched her from her home, from her parents, from her family, from her land, from everything that she knew, and placed her in the house of this man, Naaman, 
forced labor for his wife. Can you imagine that? And yet, she looked at him and noticed his agony and noticed his pain. And she took Naaman's wife aside one day and said, Hey, I know. I know how your husband can be healed. There is a prophet in Israel. And it's behind her words. It's not just the prophet, but every prophet represents someone. And this prophet in Israel represented the true, living God. She is pointing him to God. And so Naaman's wife says to him later, Son, there might be something for you in Israel. And you can tell how desperate he is because he, he goes for it. He goes to, the, to his king and says, hey, there might be this potential solution in Israel. I think I've got to try it. And the king says, oh, okay. Okay, you can go. And in fact, I'll send you a letter to go with you. So the king writes him this letter, gives it to him, and Naaman is on his way. He's on his way to Israel. And he, he brings with him, it says, ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. That is seven hundred and fifty pounds of silver, a hundred fifty pounds of gold, and the clothing. Just the gold would be the equivalent of the annual salary for 600 average workers. For us, that would be roughly $30 million. And that's just 150 pounds of gold, let alone 750 pounds of silver and 10 changes of clothing, which were invaluable at that time. So we're talking, this might be upwards of $100 million in our currency. Can you see how desperate he is? Can you see how he would give anything to be free of this? Can you see how he has probably tried everything and that everything is riding on this for him? He just longs to be free. And so he goes to the palace of the king of Israel. He hands him this letter from the king of Syria. King of Israel reads it. He says something along these lines. Dear King, please know that I have sent to you, name and my servant, for you to heal him of his leprosy. Love the Syrian king. The king of Israel looks at it and says, What? What, what am I, God? I might as well raise him from the dead. I can't cure him of his leprosy. Utterly distraught, he tears his clothes. He's like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? I, I know what's happening here. I know, what, I know what's going on. You see, the king of Syria is trying to pick a fight with me. He's trying to ask me to do something that he knows very well I will not be able to do. So that he has an excuse to come and attack me. For not cooperating with his wishes. 
for not doing what he wants. I, what am I going to do? I can't cure this man. He didn't even think about God. And then later he gets another letter. This time it's from Elisha. Elisha was a real prophet of God. He sends him a note that says, Hey, send him down here. So that he might know that there is a prophet in Israel. In other words, that I represent the one true living God. And so Naaman heads down to what I imagine to be Elisha's humble home. And he takes with him this this royal procession that had come with him. These chariots, these horses, all this whole thing down to this prophet's humble home. And we have to understand that Naaman was probably treated with a lot of respect. I mean, he was the commander of the Syrian army. He was second to the king. He was powerful. He was successful. So he was used to people treating him a certain way. So I imagine the scenario going down something like this. He knocks on the prophet's door like, Elisha, it is I. It is I. And then nothing. Then a messenger boy answers the door and says, Hi, sir. Um, The prophet says, wash yourself in the Jordan seven times and you should be clean. Good day. Walks off, right? The door closes. And Naaman's like, What? Elisha didn't even come to the door. I thought he would come out and call upon the name of his God and, and wave his hands before me and that I would be healed. He tells me to wash in a river like I haven't tried that. Like, oh, it's just a little dirt. Got to get it off. There's plenty of better rivers in Syria where I could have washed myself, let alone this disgusting Jordan River in Israel. Wash myself. He storms out, stomping his feet. And then one of his servants stops him and says, Master, if the prophet had asked you to do something extraordinary, something extravagant and bizarre, like this weird ritual dance, wouldn't you have done it? So why not this simple thing? And Naaman says, okay. In other words, he humbled himself. Isn't that always one of the first steps in coming to God? To recognize, I don't dictate the terms. I come to God on God's terms. So Naaman goes down to the Jordan River. He dips in. 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 
he comes out the seventh time and looks at his skin and it's it's completely restored. There's 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 no blemish. He's finally free. Can you believe it? He's free. And so he runs to Elisha's house. He, he bangs on the door. This time Elisha comes to the door. And this is the high point of the whole thing. He says, Now I know there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. He had been raised to worship this whole slew of gods. And he says, No, there is one God. And I met him. He says, You can have all this. This hundred million dollars. Elisha says, no, thank you. I think that helps us understand also why he didn't answer the door. I think what Elisha is doing here is making it very clear to Naaman that this is not Elisha's miracle. This is God's miracle. It's not because Elisha had these magical powers and came out and raised his, waved his hands. It's not because Naaman paid him this money and Elisha did this thing for him. No, this was completely something God did for Naaman. See, that's, that's what Elisha wanted. He wanted Naaman to be able to go back to Syria and not say, I met this prophet who was awesome, but I met the one true living God. So he waved away a fortune. Just like that. That's how much it was worth to him. For Naaman to truly know God. And it challenges me. How much is it worth to me? For someone to meet God. To truly know God. What would I sacrifice? Would I sacrifice time? When I'm in the middle of something? Would I sacrifice energy when I'm tired? How much is it worth? How much is it worth? It was worth it to Elisha. And so then Naaman says, okay, well, uh, weird request. Can I have some dirt? Because I want to bring the dirt from here back to Syria so that I can build an altar so that I can only worship the Lord from this point on. And he actually uses God's personal name here, Yahweh. I can only worship Yahweh. Then he says, but when I go back and do my job, the king leans on my arm. So when he goes into a temple to bow, I help him bow. And so I'll have to bow with him. And Elisha says, go in peace. Why? Because the very fact that Naaman is concerned about this, the very fact that this is an issue, shows that Naaman is not taking it lightly, shows that Naaman doesn't want to just add God to his list of gods. It shows his heart. And also, he's being sent to bring his faith in God alone into that context. And so Elisha says, go in peace. And so there goes Naaman, walking down the road, fully restored, with faith in the one true living God, Yahweh. 
And it all can be traced back to one little girl. Right? She was willing to be a witness. She simply shared what she knew to be true of God. It might not seem so significant on the surface, but what she said set in motion a chain of events that led to Naaman's faith. Essentially, she planted a seed. It wasn't a full presentation at this point. We'll get to those later. But in a small yet profound way, she pointed to God with what she knew, and God used that to lead to more. Sometimes when we just authentically share about God from our lives, God can use it to lead to more. I remember at my, at my, at my last job at the Latin School of Chicago, uh, I worked there before I got here, and I was one night talking with one of the chefs in the basement, just us, and I mentioned, I want to do something that matters 10,000 years from now. That's all I said. And this man, who was never serious and usually very vulgar, all of a sudden I saw him like I'd never seen him before. He stopped me. He said, wait, that just hit me. Will you, will you explain that to me? I didn't think it was so significant. But then I got to, I got to, got to open the door to share Christ with this man. And I was just sharing kind of what I thought. Sometimes God can take a small thing and use it to lead to something more. That's what happened with this little girl. She was willing to be a witness. So as a witness, what can we learn from her? I think it comes down to three beliefs that she held. Three beliefs that she held as a witness, and these beliefs are for us as witnesses as well. Number one, she believed in God's heart for all people. One of the most amazing elements of this story is that this little girl didn't write Naaman off. He wasn't a child of Abraham. He didn't know the promises. He didn't know the covenant. He was the farthest thing from all this. He was a Gentile. And on top of that, a commander of the Gentiles, of the other side. You see, some people from Israel during this time might have concluded that Naaman was not a likely candidate to receive God's mercy. But not this girl. Somehow she had caught God's heart for the nations. God's heart for all people, all types of people, even the ones that others might consider unlikely. Have you and I caught God's heart for all people? Or have we written off certain folks in our lives as unlikely Maybe we've concluded these people are the farthest thing from God and would never come to Him. Tim Keller, an author and pastor from New York, responds to this way of thinking. When Christians believe that certain people just wouldn't come to God, he says to us, oh yeah? Like you would. If other people are unlikely... Does that make you as a Christian likely? Was there just something about you that God wanted? Am I God's type of person? Keller continues along these lines, no. 
the fact that any of us could be forgiven is nothing but a miracle of grace. You might think your boss or your friend or your neighbor is the least likely person to come to God. But let me tell you, bro, ma'am, you are the least likely person to come to God. I am the least likely person to come to God. Every single one of us is the least likely person to come to God. I'm no better than anyone else. I didn't do something to pre-approve me to be a Christian. God didn't look down and recruit me. On the contrary, He rescued me. The Bible says in Ephesians 2 that we were dead in our sins. Not like half asleep. Not like severely injured, but if we try hard enough, we can get to Him. No, it says dead in our sins. Unresponsive. And then it says, by grace. You have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift, the gift from God. Not the result of work so that no one may boast. It is a sheer act of grace and mercy that I stand before you today forgiven. I wasn't likely. No one is. Every single one of us in this room is equally in need of grace. The gospel is not, I'm good, you're bad. I'm better, you're inferior. If you're not a Christian today and you have gotten that message, I am, I'm so sorry. The gospel says, I need grace. And you need grace. And you need grace. And you need grace. And you need grace. We all need grace because we've all messed up before God and sinned. And the same grace that saved my life forever is equally available to you. This little girl believed in God's heart for all, including the unlikely, but also including her enemies. You see, Syria was one of Israel's arch enemies at this time. And remember, it was the Syrian army that had snatched her from her home. And and Naaman was the leader. And now she's in the home of this man, forced to work as a servant. Can you imagine? How would we respond to that situation? Would you want to just spit at him? Would you want to just turn your back on him? Would you want to just watch him suffer like like you had to suffer? If anyone had a reason to be bitter, she did. But her enemy wasn't excluded from God's heart. She sought his well-being. She pointed her enemy to God. As witnesses, do we believe in God's heart for all, including those who might be considered our enemies? And maybe we don't have enemies. Maybe we do. But at the very least, Naaman and the Syrian army had certainly made this little girl's life worse. Have we embraced God's heart for those who intentionally or not have maybe made our lives worse? Let me be honest. Sometimes I've, I've struggled in this area as it relates to uh, my neighbors. They're certainly not my enemies, but you might say that they've made our lives worse. Not, not just in small ways, but also in, in bigger ways like gun violence. 
And I need God's heart. I need more of God's heart. And he's been helping me on praying for inroads to connect with them somehow inroads into their lives. How do we treat those who have made our lives worse? Do we write them off? Do we look at them out of the corner of our eyes? Do we exclude them from our witness of God's message and love? I want to challenge us in a very specific way this morning. Think through people who have made your life worse. It could be inconveniences. It could be something deeper. It could be a boss or a coworker. It could be a neighbor. It could be a family member or acquaintance. If you haven't already, would you begin to pray for God's heart for them? And in a safe way, would you begin to actively seek opportunities to do good to them? Like this little girl. And that leads me to the second belief that she held. The first, she believed in God's heart for all people. That was the longest one. Number two, she believed in blessing those around her. We have to remember that this little girl was technically in exile. Exile basically means when you're away from your true homeland and something happens. There's a tendency that happens when you're in exile. During exile, the temptation is to cut yourself off, to close down and just wait until you get back to your homeland. You think, I'm not home, so I'll just focus on getting by during my time here. But even though she was in exile, this little girl turned outwards, not inwards. She turned outwards and sought to bless those around her. A major theme in First Peter, a letter in the New Testament, is that the church is in exile. Spiritual exile. As Christians, we are away from our true homeland, heaven. We're in exile. And we've got that exile tendency, don't we? The real temptation can be to close down and wait until we get there. We've seen this at various times throughout the history of the church. Groups of believers cut themselves off, keep only to themselves, and just wait until they get to heaven. And I'm not just talking about cults. It's been a tendency all throughout the history of the church. It can so easily become our tendency as individuals and as a church to turn in and cut ourselves off, to keep to ourselves, to feel so estranged from a rapidly changing society that we wring our hands of it and just complain about it, looking down our noses instead of practically loving and actively engaging it. We're not home yet, church. But that doesn't mean we just hunker down and wait until we get there. Essential to our witness is to not turn inwards, but to turn outwards and bless those around us. A missiologist, which is a fancy way of someone who's an expert in missions, named Michael Frost, writes about the five habits of highly missional people. And he uses the acronym BELLS. So the first habit is the B, BLESS. What does it mean to bless someone? He breaks it down into into three categories. Number one, words of affirmation. 
Number two, acts of kindness. And number three, gifts. Generosity in in a variety of ways. It could look like a lot of different things. Words of affirmation, acts of kindness, and gifts. And you might not think it, but this is an essential part of being missional, being a witness. Michael Frost, in what he wrote, he cited a doctoral thesis that followed two missionary groups in Thailand for five years. The study showed that the group that went to Thailand and sought to bless people as essential to their witness led 50 times more people to the Lord than the other group. And they made a greater impact for the good of society. I'm not saying that blessing is the same as sharing the gospel. The gospel is still news, news to be shared, but blessing shows practical love. It reinforces our words, and it often opens the door. So again, let's get practical. Michael Frost says we should seek to bless three people every week. At least one of them being outside of our church community. How can you bless those around you in your neighborhood and your life? Words of affirmation, acts of kindness, and gifts of generosity. As a church, how can we bless those around us in the mission home and at Chase School and in the businesses and and, and people in this area? Although she was in exile, this little girl turned outward and blessed those around her. And the last belief. So she believed in God's heart for all people. She believed in blessing those around her. Number three, she believed that God uses ordinary people. This part is simple. She was not a religious professional. She was not highly educated and trained in this area. She was an ordinary person in an ordinary situation. At Billy Graham's funeral a few months ago, a reporter came up to Ed Stetzer. Ed Stetzer, who is the executive director of the Billy Graham Center and holds the Billy Graham Chair of Evangelism at Wheaton. And the reporter asked, Ed, who do you think is the next Billy Graham? She might have thought he would say, me. He thought about it and replied, the next Billy Graham is Judy the Uber driver. He was talking about the Uber driver who had just driven him to the airport and shared with him how being an Uber driver was more than a job for her, but had provided opportunities for her to share about her hope in Jesus. His point was, the next Billy Graham is not one person who rises up like a celebrity, but all of God's people embracing our identity as witnesses wherever we are. Whether we're behind a desk, whether we are an Uber driver, whether we are at home, whether we're in a condo, in an apartment, in a house, walking the dog, a movement of ordinary people in different settings all over the earth, in our neighborhoods, homes, and, and jobs, ordinary people are the next Billy Graham. Three key beliefs drove this girl's witness and will drive ours as well. She believed in God's heart for all people, including the unlikely and including her enemies. She believed in blessing those around her. And she, be- she believed that God uses ordinary people. And in that way, she reminds me of someone who came later. His name? Jesus. 
Jesus, the ultimate witness. Jesus, who believed in God's heart for all people who came and reached out to those whose society had written off. It wasn't about the people who had it all together, who thought of themselves as likely candidates, but for anyone and everyone who knew their need for grace. Jesus, who sought the good of and blessed those around him, including his enemies, so that while he was being nailed to the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And beyond that, the truth is that we were his enemies. We, in our sin, we turned against God and went our own way, declaring our opposition to him. Yet even when we were enemies, he died for us, paying the price of our betrayal and sin And rose again that by trusting in him, we might be blessed in the deepest sense. A clean slate, past, present, and future. New life connected with God forever. Jesus, who believed God uses ordinary people. He empowered and sent out ordinary people as his disciples. Ordinary people who he used to launch a movement that is still going on today. Ordinary people who embrace their identity as witnesses. Ordinary people like us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would... Move in our lives, move in our hearts, and help us to be empowered and equipped as witnesses. We thank you that for anyone who trusts in you, you have given us the gift of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, who is the ultimate witness living inside of us. Help us to lean on you as you guide us in being a witness, Lord. I pray that we would grow and And be excited and encouraged in this area of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, at this time, I invite you to stand.